And then if you would, um, we're not going to read that until we kind of move through the text. So if you would just bow with me. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask for your power that we possess in Christ, the power that the Spirit works in us. We ask that you would allow us to see how to appropriate that, to walk in it. We need you to move in our hearts and lives. We need you to help us love and cherish what you have before us. We need you to help us feast on the word and not just leave it here, but for us to walk in it. We pray um, that you would do that in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever went to a camp or conference or, you know, met with a Christian brother or sister uh, at some point uh, and you really got fired up? Um, Maybe it's been a long time. Maybe uh, it's been a long time since that's happened. Maybe it was, you know, some people uh, I've, you know, spent time with, I feel like the last time they did that was like at a camp experience, you know, that they had. But that's something that we, sometimes you experience that. Maybe there's a conference that when you go to it, you just feel so energized and so charged up. It it, it really has a lot of value for you. And you think, I'm going to serve the Lord uh, as a result of that, as a result of hearing it. And you treasure uh, God maybe at a place you, you haven't normally you have those moments, and people sometimes in the Christian circles call them mountaintop experiences. Uh, some people search after one, after the other, after the other, and they really kind of get addicted to conferences. You know, they're like, um, uh, and they have their favorite people, at least for a time, you know, and they love to talk about what they said or this. I mean, it's just like... They so dig somebody and they idolize them almost. You know, it can kind of get into a really messed up, weird kind of thing. But um, it's still valuable. There's these valuable moments, I think, that we have. Um, One for me was just meeting with this older man. He was in his mid-80s at the time. Uh, His name was Ian Thomas, Major Ian Thomas. He worked in, or he was served in um, World War II. And uh, I went to visit him. He was a part of a ministry, and really, due to his preaching and teaching, they kind of established 24 uh, Bible colleges all over the world, and uh, happened to be at Estes Park, Colorado, at at the age of 19, and went to look at the school there. It's just a one-year Bible school, and was able to meet him and sit down with him for like two hours, and he, he talked, and I listened, asking one question, and he just like laid it on me I think he kind of did that with everybody that came to visit him but it was just one of those moments that made a mark on my life you know you have those um again I don't think they're bad but if you think that's going to keep you and and hold you it's just not enough like you need you need regular uh, steady um, encouragement in the things of God. There are things that the old timers would call means of grace, like coming to worship, reading the word, prayer, singing songs, 
hymns and spiritual songs, uh, taking the Lord's Supper. There are things that God has given us that are constant doses of, of healthy things in the life of a believer that you, almost, you just kind of practice them, and you practice them, and you practice them, and you practice them. Those mountaintop experiences are valuable, but you find sometimes that they, if we think that life's going to be like what that feels like, and we think that, that we're going to run on the fuel that we get from one of those moments, it's, it's not enough. We need Christ work in our lives, the Spirit working in our lives, and we also are participating in that as we regularly pursue the things that we know we are we ought to do. So this morning, if I were thinking as I think about this text, I think this is one of those kind of very powerful moments for the children of Israel. This is one of those kind of like mountaintop experiences, if you will. Last week I asked you if you had one opportunity to lay out some truth or speak to your family or to your church family or to your Sunday school class, whatever it is, to a group of employees. If you had one moment to speak things to them, what would you say? And we see Joshua speaks to these people right before he passes away. He gets the opportunity and he lays that out. I reminded you too that chapter one, Joshua uh, receives instructions from the Lord. He's going to lead after Moses dies. Uh, in 2 through 12, he leads the people into the promised land. They have victory, multiple victories. Uh, 13 through 22, Joshua is going to divide the land among the tribes. 23 and 24, you see this either one or two farewell speeches here. You might could catalog it as two. And um, we know that the land is at rest and things are in a good place. But Joshua fears the people might turn away from the Lord. And so he makes, he says, look at all the promises that God has given us. And then he warns them. In chapter 24, where we're looking at today, you're going to get a history lesson. Some of you are really good at giving history lessons, maybe, here. And uh, you like to repeat things that have uh, happened here or there or wherever. Maybe you even tell your children, you give them history lessons and they treasure them with their whole uh, being, you know. No, sometimes uh, you, you think about that, but it, 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 that sometimes you think, or I do with my dad, I'll be like, I've heard that story, heard that story, heard that, no. But Joshua's going to repeat the history of these people and how God kind of called them and led them and guided them. And he's going to use that as a means of like driving them to this fact that they are to serve the Lord because of who he is and what he's done. And he, he's going to present that this morning. And so I would just say to you, we need to make a habit of remembering. A habit of remembering God's past faithfulness in order that we might serve him in the present faithfully. That we might be committed to the Lord. So let's look at these, this text. We're going to work through uh, a portion of it. But I really want you to read this with me. So you, you don't read it out loud, but I want you to look in your Bible at Joshua 24, and I want you to see this. Now, some of you uh, have an electronic device, and you can't do what I'm asking you to do, but I would look at every time you see I, and then there's going to be a verb behind it. 
And I would underline it. You don't have to, but that might be helpful. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the other officers of Israel. And they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham, and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac. And to Isaac, I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau, the hill country of Seir, to possess. But Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron. And I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst. And afterward, I brought you out. And I sent Moses and Aaron Sorry, in verse 6. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. And you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, the king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land. On which you have not labored in cities which you did not build. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and the olive orchards that you did not plant. Is God arrogant? He sits there and talks about himself the whole time. You met people like that maybe. Men often. (laughs) Tell you everything. Is that wrong for God? To boast about all the things he did. No. Why? Because he's God. And he does reign. And everything that is done, he is sovereignly reigning over human history. He actually can boast... And call up on you to boast in him and it not be wrong because he is the greatest. And he is the one to be treasured. And he is the only one to be worshipped. Sometimes you meet people, like I said, that they would just sit around and go, and I, and I, and I. And you're like, 
oh my goodness, you're the most wonderful person on the planet in your own eyes. But when God says that, it is actually true. Sometimes you might say, I went to school, I did this, I pushed through, and I, I. And you're like, hold on just a second. Who made you? Who made you? Who placed you in the family that you were placed in? Who gave you the temperament that you have? Who provided people around you to encourage you in those things? Who gave you opportunity? Who sustained your life so that you could breathe? Who who did that? Who opened doors for you that you could not open? Like when you get down to it, you'll say, wait, hold on just a second. Like Job, you'll put your hand over your mouth and be silent. Because I is crushed in front of the majesty of the Most High. They could not take credit for God calling Abraham out of pagan idolatry on his way to hell. Abraham could not stand before God and say, I. Did you hear that? Abraham could not stand before God and say, God, I found you. God, I summoned you. I There is no I. God came to Abram and said, I will do this with you. I am going to bless you. I am going to make you a great nation. I, I, I. Abraham is worshiping idols made out of wood and stone. He grew up in a family where people were idolaters. They had damning idolatries that would destroy them. And God came to him. God rescued him. You'll see here, God chose a people for himself. God called Abraham out of a land filled with idolatry. He was among a people who served, again, counterfeit idols. They spent their whole life worshiping something that did not exist. He had grown up under this worthless system, this damning system. All the promises that have been made to provide good things for these people that were attached to these false idols, that's what he, all he knew. Abraham wasn't seeking after God. God sought him. This is like a shocking picture of the mercy of grace of God to Israel. God delivers a people out of this pagan system that was so destructive. I mentioned this before, but when my um, parents, or my mom actually, when her parents decided, and probably my grandfather, that there was like, um, 
You ever heard that song, All the Gold in California? You're, you know, well, maybe not. Okay. But anyway, um, it, it's in a bank in the middle of Beverly Hills with somebody else's name. No? Okay. Anyway. But so he's sitting there and he is, um, uh, my grandfather is thinking like there's opportunity out there. We will move out to California seeking a better life. And uh, they moved out there. And the better life that they were seeking, I mean, I'm sure he did fine. He worked insane hours and worked very, very hard for his family. But they didn't realize that the life that they were searching for would be found there, but it would be far greater than they ever imagined. Because when they got there, um, my uh, grandfather's sister, I believe it was, her cousin, said, hey, I'm going to take those kids to church whether y'all go or not. So then my grandmother started going. They started, I mean, and over and over, like three times, uh, m- my uncle came to know the Lord, and then um, my grandmother, my grandfather, of course, my, my mom and her sister, it was later. But what was interesting about all that is like in the midst of all the things going on, God like rescues this little family. And guess what? It's been passed down. And then pass down again. We're hoping to pass it down again. And it's just a reminder of God's gracious work. He is merciful. He calls out a people for himself. He brings them to himself. So the first thing you can see is God is like called Abraham. The second thing is God delivered. Not only Abraham certainly, but he delivers these people. If you remember, um, God took them out of the promised land when it was there was a great famine going on. And for 30 years, things went well because the Pharaoh knew, Egypt, uh, knew um, Joseph. But then after Joseph dies, um, you know, he, he's forgotten. And so therefore, the Egyptians are looking at these people and saying, they're becoming great and mighty. They might take over our country. They'll take over our country if we don't beat them back. And so they say, hey, instead of killing them, we'll just enslave them. And so they spent 400 years in slavery. And then as the people cried out, the Lord being true to his promise, he had already told Abraham, they're going to spend 400 years in bondage. But when the time was up, people were crying out, God hears, God responds, and God saves them. He sends a series of plagues on Egypt that are so horrific that it totally destroyed the country. The last one killed the firstborn in all of Egypt. And so finally they're sent out and sent away. And when that happens, Pharaoh is, um, uh, decides that that was a bad idea to send them away. He sends his army after them. And guess what God does? God allows the children of Israel to pass through the waters of judgment. And when the Egyptians end up in there, he, he crashes down upon them great judgment and destroys not only their country, but destroys their army. It proved that all man-made religion was counterfeit against the real and true and living God. God also sustained them as they and provided for them during the 40 years as they move throughout the wilderness and then when God brought them into the land into the land of the Amorite God destroyed the Amorites before them he systematically did this shocking 
It wasn't because of the strength of Israel that they could go into this land and take it. And it wasn't because these people were, you know, you can't, some people might say, well, weren't those nice people that they were going in and taking their land? No, they weren't nice people. God said he had been storing up wrath for them. And when he poured it out, he poured it out. And God saved his people and rescued them. He sent, it says, the hornet before them. The destructive nature of this is just absolutely shocking to our minds. So we say, God calls these people. He says, you're mine. He calls them. And then he saves them or rescues them. He delivers them over and over in this text. You see that. And then we see God gives them this land. And we kind of been seeing that as we're moving through. But look at verse 13. I gave you a land which you had not labored for in cities that you had not built. And you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Again, he has provided for them. We have a tendency to say, oh, I did that. I, I, I provide for my family. I provide this. I provide that. I've done this. And it, it, here you just say, hold on just a second. What we see is God is the gracious provider, the sustainer of life. And he gives to them and he blesses them. You know what else, just as a side note, have you ever said it like a Thanksgiving maybe table or a church kind of Thanksgiving thing and you ask people, what are you thankful for? What are you thankful for? And they might say, my family, food on the table, home. You know, you kind of go through all these physical things but here in this text, there's something interesting is like, I think with Israel, you do kind of are tied to more physical when you move the New Testament, a more spiritual kind of aspect of the blessings. I want to read a couple of places um, here for you, because I think it's really helpful for us to see this, this work of God and what he's provided. When I think about his calling, First Peter 2, 9 and 10 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. So in one sense, you could say, oh, wait, he's repeating those things. He saved us. He called us. He brought us into his family. When you think about deliverance, Colossians says, one says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Colossians 2, 13 and through 15 say, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made us alive together. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. And he disarmed the rulers and authorities. It's just one of those things where he's saying, God has saved us. God has called us. And God has delivered us. He has rescued us. And then the scripture says he's given us an inheritance. What kind of inheritance? Not just a physical inheritance. Not just money or land on this earth but an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, guarded by God's power. Now, think about this with me. Why does he give them a history lesson? He's speaking to them 
presumably for the last time corporately, why does he give them a history lesson? Why is that valuable? They need to remember what God has done in the past so that they would live rightly in the present. It's it's very important sometimes to, to rehearse that, repeat that, remind yourself of past faithfulness so that present life will be lived in a certain way. He's saying, remember what I did for him and him and him and him and her and all this, this group of people. Remember what I've done. Because some of these people had never seen it before. It's interesting, uh, a couple of years ago, I went to New Orleans and went to the World War II Museum, and I didn't know anything about, I mean, I knew enough, you know, I, I learned some stuff going to school and things like that, but you just kind of don't remember, like, of course, I don't even know about it at all, like, in one sense, because I did not, I wasn't around when it happened, I, I've watched videos on it, read a little bit about it, taught about it in school, but, you know, you go to that museum and you think, Wow, I mean, this is shocking to see what all took place. Um, a number of years ago, too, I went to a, a Holocaust museum, and it was, again, just trying to take that in. There was a part of me that thought, like, did this just ruin my trip? You know, like, I don't even, because there was just so much to take in and to think about. Why, why are those important? Maybe some of you think, museums, hmm, why would people go... One of the values of that is that somehow you might be able to capture just a little bit of that and understand at some level what has taken place. God speaks of his past faithfulness. He uses Joshua to do that so that they might serve him in the present. And look what it says. We see this in 24, uh, really 14 through the end. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I mean, there is something where you're saying, like, he is God. And Ryan talked about that this morning, like he's God, like he is the king, he reigns over everything, we are to worship him because he is king and the ruler of creation, he created it, sustains it, all of it's his, but not only that, we are to worship him because he has rescued us, he is both creator and redeemer, how much more do you and I have reason to worship him, and what does it mean to Worship or serve. You ever served anybody? Maybe. You know, a little bit. What does it cost? What does serving your wife cost? You might say, oof, a lot. You know, maybe. You might say, I don't know, maybe, I don't know if it costs anything. You mean like, how much money does it cost me? Or, you know. It's work. It's like actively working at serving. It takes focus, time, and energy. Listen, for you to come to a worship service and serve the Lord, do you think of it like that? As serving the Lord? 
What what would that mean? If you came in here today and said, I am going to serve the Lord in every aspect of this gathering. I want to serve the Lord. I want to serve the Lord. I want to serve the Lord in my singing. I want to serve the Lord with a right heart. I want to serve the Lord by having gratitude in my heart. I want to serve the Lord by taking in His Word, by receiving it, by listening to it, by digesting it, by obeying it. I want to serve the Lord. That takes a a lot of focus and time and energy. It is not, it's costly work. It's not something that comes easy. It requires probably you preparing yourself the night before to get ready for a time of serving the Lord. God also does not want a service that is done in a way where you're bitter about it. Sometimes, like, I would serve my family. I'll walk in from a day at work, and I'll come in to serve my family, and I really don't want to. And so I'm, like, grumbling on the inside as I do, right? Not happily serving. I'm not doing it with joy. So I think there's something here of asking yourself, what type of service is going on in you? Because if your service is dependent upon what is provided here in the sense of like entertainment, I'll serve the Lord if this makes me happy, if it makes me feel like everything's going to be great for me, then I'll serve the Lord. No, it's we serve the Lord because of what he has done, not because what somebody's doing for me. But rather like how I can rightly serve him. What are these people doing? And why is Joshua dealing with that? Why is he addressing that? Evidently, they want the gods of this age that they live in, or like maybe a past age, Egypt, and God in, like maybe those gods in one pocket and God in the other. Why? Maybe they have a way of viewing life where they say, you know what, I've got to have both in order for life to be full. If God doesn't like show up and meet my tangible physical needs in that moment, then I've got to get one of those other gods out and maybe he'll make it happen for me. When he addresses this, he says, you choose who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I remember... A number of years ago, I walked up the steps, walked up to the door of this house, got ready to ring the doorbell. My eyes, I'm kind of one of those people that can pay, I catch details like I I usually kind of get the cue, you know. I'm looking around and paying attention. So I'm about to hit the doorbell. I look down and there is like this stone monument kind of like this engraved stone carving thing where it's like sitting there almost reminded you of like, um, I don't know, almost like granite or something. I don't know what exactly it was, but it's, it's this piece and it's like embedded in this brick wall of this house. I walk up there and it says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It, it looked like when they built the house, they put that little marble or whatever that was, granite kind of thing in there and then they built the bricks around it that's how it was set in there and it was a reminder man it kind of hit me i thought are you serious 
like I don't know what kind of forethought it took or whatever to do that, but it was just like, man, that's that's like a reminder to all who come here of the life these people are seeking to live. It was a costly service in a way you could say to the Lord. Joshua is saying, as for me and my house, we will do that. We will serve the Lord. Schaefer writes this. This was the character of Joshua. He chose and he chose and he chose and he kept right on choosing. He understood the dynamics of choice. Once for all choice and existential choice as well. Thus his word to the people was not an affirmation puffed up on the spur of the moment. It was deeply embedded in Joshua's comprehension of what is required of a person made in the image of God. One called upon not to obey God like a machine or an animal, but to obey God by choice. He was choosing this day whom he would serve. And he and his house would serve the Lord. You remember Joshua, when it was time to go into the promised land, and the, he was one of the 12 spies, and he and Caleb said, we are going. Wait, there are giants in the land. It's frightening. It's scary. Are we going to be able to make it? I mean, what, you know, everybody else is like, no. So they spent 40 years in the wilderness, and Joshua is there waiting to move forward by faith. And I just think it's important to understand that. He had set his heart in that direction. He would focus and commit his life in service to the Lord. Here's how the people respond. Far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord. We're going to serve Him. We are going to do what He says. We're going to follow Him. He's done all this stuff for us. We will serve the Lord. In verse 19, Joshua says, you're not able to. What does he mean? Is this something like a coach? Have you ever seen like they get the team together and they pull everybody together? You're going to serve the Lord? And they're down like this and the people are like, the the team's like, we will. He's like, you're not going to do it. And they're like, no, we will. And he's like, no, you'll never do it. You'll not win the game because you're not going to do this. And they'll be like, we'll do it. And they're like fired up and they they run out to play the game. Is it something like that? Is Joshua looking at that situation and kind of like stirring the people? Is it that Joshua knows they're kind of cocky, but they're really lazy? You ever met somebody like that? They have all these bold claims, but they're like the laziest people you've ever met on the planet. And so you're like, you'll never do it. And you're telling the truth. Because you're not going to be resolved to do it. You're a big talker with very little action. Joshua says, you're not able to do it. Could it be a prophetic voice? Could it be like Joshua is saying, it's impossible for you to do it apart from God. Could he be saying, you won't do it because there is something coming, someone coming that will have to do it. You will never do it. Only God could do it. Verse 21, the people said, no, but we will serve the Lord. Well, at the end of this chapter, you find out that they did not. They served the Lord during Joshua's time and those who were around him. But after that, 
they forsook the Lord. Judges speaks of that. The whole book speaks of that. Then Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself. Put away the gods. Incline your heart to the Lord. He knows that there's still within them this lingering, this longing, this treasuring of this age. And he says, turn away from it. And they say, we will obey. By the way, service is not tied to just saying, I'll serve. It's an obedient service. It is an active service. It is moving forward in service. So verse 25 through 28 here, you see Joshua makes a covenant with them. Covenants, and and you see this in somebody getting married. They are going to say, I'll do this and then I'll do that. God says, if you'll follow me, you will know my blessing. If you reject me, you will know the curse. The people say, we will follow you. And if we don't, we understand the implications. A covenant is two parties coming into a binding agreement saying that this is what we will both do. Knowing that, they make that statement. Joshua says, let's make a covenant. It's like repeating what happened with Moses at Sinai and then the same kind of covenant and then it's repeated right before the people are about to go in the promised land. Now they've been there for a while and it's repeated again. There are blessings and curses with this covenant and that's kind of what you are presented with here. And so then Joshua says, we've made a covenant, I'm setting up a stone and it will be as a reminder. When you walk by it, you will say, that is what we told the Lord that we would do. Why do people hold some gods in their pocket? Maybe gods of this age, promise, the good life, and then God in the other pocket and say, I'll pull these out when I need them, but I'll keep God too. Why do they want to do that? Hold them in tension. See, God doesn't allow that. He says, you, I am holy. I demand that you worship me only. People do these things because we trust more in the gods of this age often than the one true and living God. Those people I told you about earlier who had that house with the little monument at the front door, they sold that house a number of years ago. I wondered, did the new buyers understand what that was all about? Did they even know the verse? Did they even know that it was in the Bible? Did they think these people were crazy? Did they cover it up with a plant? Or did they just go and take it out and then put bricks back in? I I don't really know what they did. But I do know this. You, you and I must choose who we will serve. The reality is... When Joshua said, you'll never be able to do it, that is true. Do you know what God did? He ushered in a new covenant. And guess who made it right? Guess who, guess who did what the Israelites could never do? Jesus. Jesus fully obeyed the law. 
Jesus came under the condemnation of the law. Jesus, our Savior, did what mankind could never do. The eternal Son of God came down and became man so that sinful men could be saved. This covenant was not a law written in stone, but it ushered in a day where the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, the law would be written on our hearts. Our good standing is not tied to our law-keeping, but Jesus' law-keeping. And we, out of response to what he has done for us, the covenant blessings that we've received and the covenant curses that have been placed on him, we now get to experience eternal life. How much more should our service be costly? How much more should our service be given over in a way that would be so honoring to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray you would just do a mighty work in our hearts as we seek your ways. In Christ's name, amen.